All right, guys, all right. Uh, in our Advent series, we have been or start, are starting to look at the mothers of Jesus uh, that are named in Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Last week, we looked at Tamar, who, uh, who's a woman who was thrust into poor choices by Judah's wickedness. We learned that God is always on the side of justice for those who have been oppressed and wronged. And that as a mother of Jesus, Tamar reminded us that Jesus came to bring justice to the oppressed, to right wrongs, and to set the world right again. This week we meet the next mother of Jesus mentioned in the genealogy of Matthew, Rahab. And like Tamar, she has much to teach us about the coming Messiah. Now, at this point in redemptive history, the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 2 is where we're going to be. At this point in redemptive history, God's people still knew very little about who and what the Messiah will be. They knew that, according to Genesis 3, that he would come and crush the head of the serpent, right? Uh, they knew that he would be a son of Abraham and that he would uh, bless all of the nations of the earth. They knew that he would be a king of the tribe of Judah and the scepter would not depart from him. And then Rahab, they wouldn't know this, but Rahab teaches us looking back some things about him too. So let's read Rahab's story, this mother of Jesus in Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from I feel like I'm going to say a bad word if I say this word, so I'm going to skip over it. From this place, (laughs) he sent them as spies saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you. Who entered your house, for they have come to search out all of the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was, was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I do not know where that men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid out in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, as the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gotten out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. 
Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made to us, uh, made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother and brothers and all of your father's household. Then, if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and, re- and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given us all the land into our hearts, and also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. This is the word of the Lord. Christmas movies and Christmas stories are all about achieving the impossible. They are about Christmas miracles. Rudolph lighting the way for Santa's sleigh. Frosty the snowman coming to life. Buddy the elf reuniting with his family. Scott becoming Santa Claus and also becoming the father to his son that he never truly was. In every Hallmark movie in the world... The same story over and over again, relationships restored, families healed, and restored faith in humanity. The story of Rahab happens long, long before the very first Christmas, but yet it is the sort of story that inspires Christmas miracles. See, Rahab lived in this Canaanite city called Jericho, and we don't know much about them, but we know that it was a wicked city, so wicked, in fact, that Joshua, after they take the city, Joshua says that if anyone rebuilds it, let them be cursed. We know the city was marked by wicked sexual practices that we won't talk about. And we know that it was marked by their willingness to lay their newborn infants on an altar to their God and sacrifice them. One such practice was to heat up the arms of this statue until they were burning hot and they would lay their infants on the arms to be consumed to their God. These were Rahab's people. These were Rahab's gods. And Rahab, amongst this wicked people, was herself known as Rahab the prostitute. Now, even in a wicked culture, no girl says, Daddy, when I grow up, you know what I want to be? I want to be a prostitute. That's not the type of work anyone aspires to. That's not how it works. You enter that line of work because you have been forced into it by the actions of wicked men. Wicked men who treat you like a commodity, like a soulless recreational vehicle for their pleasure. And so that's Rahab. Rahab is this broken sinner living in a broken, evil place. The perfect person for a Christmas miracle. To remind you what's going on in the story up to this point, remember God has promised Israel, his people, his nation, this land. Not only Jericho, but all of the land of Israel. And, and, and uh, they've escaped from slavery out of Egypt. They've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And they're about to take the, begin to take the land that God has promised them. 
Joshua is now the leader because Moses has died. And Joshua sends spies and scouts out into the city to begin to plan how they are going to conquer this land. The spies are in the city. They're checking it out. They're, they're plotting it. They're seeing the walls. They're kind of figuring out a plan of attack. And they need somewhere to sleep for the night. And so these spies end up in the house of Rahab the prostitute. Maybe because they thought it was inconspicuous, I don't know, but that is where they find rest for the night. And there are two things happening here. All of, of all of the places to sleep, of all of the homes to run into, it is by no accident that they end up in Rahab's house. As we will see, God has already been softening and preparing the heart of Rahab for faith. So in this moment, God is both protecting his people by hiding them in Rahab's home, someone's home who would protect them, while also providing a means by which Rahab can learn and know and come to trust in this God whom they serve. So of all of the houses, why did the spies end up in Rahab's house? Well, there is no reason other than that that is what the Lord had planned for both their sake and Rahab's. It is a reminder to us that God is in control and there are no accidents. That God makes no mistakes and that sometimes God places us in surprising situations because, because he has plans we don't even know about. These spies only saw Rahab as a prostitute in an already wicked city that they were prepared to destroy. But God saw Rahab for what he was going to do in her life. Redeem her and through her bring the savior of the world. It is a reminder that we can trust God because in the smallest details he is still at work. So these spies, they're, they're sleeping in Rahab's house. When the king of Jericho learns, he realizes, he, he, someone tells him that the spies are out. They've been plotting. They've been looking at the land, and they're planning to take it. And he learns that they are staying at Rahab's house. Now, Rahab, with no bartering, with no promises made, with no threats made to her, the spies aren't, you know, they don't have a knife behind her. They haven't made her promises with no prompting whatsoever. They come to her house. She says, yes, yeah, the spies are here. These men were here. But I didn't know who they were. And they've since left. Go hurry and catch them before they get home. All the while she has them hiding on her roof. You see, at great risk to herself, she protects the very men who are planning to destroy her home. At great risk to her own safety. She protects the very men who are planning to destroy her home. Corey Tinboom is famous for her book, The Hiding Place. Many of you have probably read it. And in this book, she recounts uh, her and her family who hid Jews from the Nazis during World War II. She hid men, women, women and, and children, children for no real, who were being hunted down for no real reason, not because they were a threat, not because they did anything wrong, just because they were Jews. And she hid them and protected them because her faith in God told her that these people were made in the image of God and deserved to be protected. Rahab is not merely hiding men who are being persecuted for no reason. Rahab is hiding enemy combatants. She is hiding those people who would seek to destroy her entire city, her entire kingdom, and all of her people. She is protecting her people's enemy. Corey Ten Boom in that book once said, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future 
to a known God. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And though Rahab had not yet come to know the God of Israel fully, she wanted to. She had heard the stories. She had heard the whispers and the rumors of what the God of Israel could do. And she would rather risk everything, risk her life, risk being a traitor to her people for the chance of being accepted by this God of whom she's only heard whispers. She was willing to forsake her people. She was willing to forsake her countrymen. She was willing to forsake her home, betray her home, betray the gods her people worshipped for the hope that the true God would save her and accept her. And how fitting is that? How fitting is it that this woman would betray her countrymen, would betray her family, would betray uh, and risk all of this? How fitting is it? Because her grandson, Jesus, would one day come and call men to do the very same thing to follow him. Matthew 19, 29 says, and everyone, Jesus says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Luke 14, 25, uh, 14, 25 says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus' whole ministry, he would call people to follow him, but he would caution them to count the cost. If you want to follow me, you must count the cost because to follow me is to come and die. To follow me is to put everything else before uh, or after me. To follow me, you might lose your family. To follow me, you might lose your friends. To follow me, you might lose your job. To follow me, you might have to forsake your countrymen. You might have to give your own life. If Jesus is going to be your king, and if our fealty is going to be to one, then everyone and everything else becomes disposable. If your parents forbid you to go to church, if they say they will disown you if you become a Christian, then you must walk away from your family and walk toward Jesus. If your boss says, stop talking about Jesus at work, and if you don't stop, you will not have a job here, then you risk your finances and you keep talking about Jesus. If your friends say, you know what, ever since you've become a Christian, you're different, and we want the old you back, you say, guys, the old me is dead. And you point them to Jesus. And what most likely happens is that your circle of friends begins to change. If you become a Christian while dating somebody who does not follow Jesus, you don't say, well, you know what, that's their decision. You say, if you do not follow Christ with your whole heart, sorry, we can't be together. If your country demands you do something that clearly calls you to go against the teachings of Jesus, you, you say, my allegiance is not to a flag, to a country or a man, but to a king and a kingdom. So no, I cannot do that thing you asked me to do. You see, to follow Jesus is to forsake all other allegiances. To follow Jesus is to have fealty to one and to forsake all other allegiances. If you've not heard the story of 
Afshin Ziafat. I encourage you to YouTube that name and try to figure out how to spell that and, and watch it. He is a pastor here in America, but before he was a pastor in America, he was a young Muslim from Iran. And he, uh, because of the wars that broke out in Iran in, I think, the late 70s, he had to move uh, to America, and he didn't know English. And so he had to learn English, and so his parents got him a tutor to teach him English. And by the providence of God, this English tutor gave him one of those little bitty New Testament Bibles to practice reading his English. And when he was a teenager, he began to go through some things, and he heard the gospel, and he, he remembered that Bible that he had that the English teacher gave him, and he went and pulled it back out and started reading it, and then he placed his faith in Christ. He started going to church, but he had to hide everything from his parents, particularly his dad, who was very high, a very important deal in the Muslim community. And so he had to hide anything that was associated with Christianity from his father. He, he went to the mailbox and intercepted the mail that the church was sending him to make sure his father didn't find out. He hid his Bible. He hid everything. He went home. He would still have to pretend to be a Muslim. And one day he came home and his dad came to him and his dad said, Son, what's going on? There's something different about you. And I found some things in your room that I don't understand like this Bible. And Ashwin said, Dad, I'm a Christian. And his dad says, no, you're not, young man. You are a Muslim. And you will always be a Muslim. And he said, Dad, the Bible says that if I trust in Christ alone for my salvation, then I'm a Christian, and I've done that, and so I'm a Christian. And his dad said, Ashwin, if you're going to be a Christian, then you can no longer be my son. And Ashwin said, everything in my flesh, he said, I wanted to say, forget it. Forget it. I'll be a Muslim. I don't want to lose the relationship with my dad. And so he says that he was even surprised when he opened his mouth and said, Dad, if I have to choose between you and Jesus, I choose Jesus. If I have to choose between my earthly father and my heavenly father, then I choose my heavenly father. And he says, my father disowned me on the spot. Before Jesus came, and before he called us to follow him above all else, Rahab risked her life risked her family, risked everyone to protect two men, two spies, two enemy combatants against her people in the hopes that their God would become her God. My question for us is are we willing to forsake whatever it would cost us to follow Jesus? Would you let wealth go? Would you let family go? Would you let friends go? Would you let patriotism go? Would you give up everything you had to to follow Jesus? Following Jesus means fealty to one, allegiance to one, to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the story of Rahab reminds us that following Jesus is always costly. Always costly. Hebrews chapter 11 is often called the hall of faith. As it describes the the great faith of the people of the Old Testament. It mentions Abraham and Moses and other big character, big deal people like that. And it talks about how great, uh, how great a faith that they had. But Hebrews 11 also mentions Rahab. Hebrews 11.31 says, By faith, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Why did she give this friendly welcome to the spies? By faith. Notice it says by faith. 
In this act of hiding these Israelite spies, she is placing her faith, her trust in the God that she has only heard whispers of. Someone might look at this moment of faith for Rahab and determine, you know, this is blind faith. This is, this is blind faith that she has no reason. It's illogical for her to trust in the God of Israel. There's no reason to forsake her people and turn on her gods and believe in this God she's barely heard of. There have been philosophers, uh, one such as Soren Kierkegaard, who said that the Christian faith is a leap of faith. It is blind faith that despite all reason, we must leap out and believe. That despite all of the evidence, we must with blinded eyes leap over the canyon, believing against all odds that God will catch us. Like that moment in Indiana Jones, I can't remember which one it is, but it's the one where he's trying to find the Holy Grail. And there's this moment in this trial where there's this great cavern. Y'all remember what he's got to do? He's got to have a leap of faith and step out on it. And he steps out on the ledge, right? Right here. Believe and it will catch him. And then, mysteriously, it does. And so some people would say that Christianity is like that. It's a leap of faith that against all of the evidence, against all reason, we must have a leap of faith, blind faith in, in Jesus. Often faith is thought to be like that. People might think that that is what Rahab is doing, but that is not what Rahab is doing. That is not what we should be doing. Notice what Rahab says to the spies. She says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, all of her people of Jericho, and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water in the Red Sea before you when, he came, when you came up out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion, to Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Remember, it, the people of Israel are these <laughs> broke, wandering in the wilderness people, like living in tents. And they've taken out these two countries. God has parted an ocean for them. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of the heavens and on the earth. She is not taking some blind leap of faith. She is looking at the evidence. She is concluding that she has never seen her gods do anything. She has never seen her gods act at all. But the God of Israel has parted an ocean for his people. The God of Israel has caused water to come from a rock for his people. The God of Israel freed them from slavery. The God of Israel made bread come from heaven. The God of Israel led this podunk nation to take out two giant armies. She's heard the news. She's heard the news about these freed slaves and this great nation and the Lord that is leading them. And she concludes that by the works of the Lord, that the God of Israel indeed is the God of the heavens and the earth. You see, faith is never blind. Our faith is a reasoned faith. We don't, with blinded eyes, jump out over the the cavern hoping that God will catch us. Instead, we say all of the evidence, all of the reason, says that our God is the God of the heavens and the earth. See, like Rahab, we don't just worship the God of the country to which we belong. We don't just put, pick, pick a God out of a hat to worship. Well, as Christians, we don't check our brains at the door. We look at the evidence. We say, this Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be able to forgive sins. 
And those are wild, outrageous claims, but he also claimed that he was raised from the dead. And if he was raised from the dead, then everything he said is true. And we'll, though this is a whole other sermon that we don't have time for, if you examine the evidence of the resurrection, it is overwhelmingly convincing that 2,000 years ago, in a Middle Eastern tomb, a dead man came back to life, and the world has never been the same. And so based off that reason and that logic, we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's interesting, when you look back, when you look at Rahab's response to hearing these stories, just not seeing them, just hearing about them through the grapevine. She's heard about what God has done. And it's interesting when you compare her hearing these whispers of what God has done to the other spies that Joshua sent. You might remember this story that before these two spies came that are in Rahab's house, that Joshua had sent other spies first out into the, the land of Canaan. And what did those spies do? They came back to Joshua trembling in fear because they found giants in Jericho. And they told Joshua, there's no way. No way we can defeat them. They got giant walls. They're giants. There's no way. And they were afraid. The spies were scared of Jericho because these people were tall. They had giant walls. And those spies completely forgot that on their side, they had a God who parted the ocean. They had a God who conquered armies. They had a God who gave water from a rock in the desert, bread from heaven, and it was meat from the sky. They forgot that God led them through the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. They forgot that the God of armies was on their side. And so they were afraid. They were afraid and they did not apply the same reason and logic to their situation that Rahab did. Rahab knew. Rahab knew just by the whispers that her people were no match for the God of heaven and earth. How often do we live in fear? Do we live in fear because we don't apply the same logic and reason Rahab did? How often do we live in fear because we forget that the spirit of the resurrected Christ lives inside of us? How often do we back down from sharing the gospel with our neighbors because we are afraid of failure, afraid of awkwardness, afraid of broken relationships? How often do we shrink in fear from living in generosity for, for fear of living without financial security? How often do we disobey the thing God is calling us to particularly, the thing God may be pressing upon your heart to do? How often do you say, no, God, and you shrink back in fear, forgetting that the God who raises the dead lives inside of you? How often do we forget the God we serve raises the dead? That no matter what happens, he will empower us. He will feed us. He will clothe us. He will care for us. And so we can live boldly and we can risk everything knowing that in Christ, victory is already ours. We can live boldly for Jesus because our reasoned faith says victory is secure. Jesus has won. We have nothing to be afraid of. Do you remember when Jesus asked Peter, Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter, in a moment of great profound clarity, says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes on to say, then on this rock, 
I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Sometimes we look at that verse and we think, oh, that means that we can live in confidence because we know hell can't get us. Hell can't get after us. But but that's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you can live in confidence because hell is never going to get you. It says the gates of hell, not the swords of hell. It says the gates of hell, not the spears of hell. Gates are a defensive weapon just like the walls of Jericho. Gates are on the defense. Jesus is telling us that you can live in such victory that as you advance the kingdom of Christ, as you proclaim the gospel, as you risk everything for me, the gates protecting the land, the territory that the devil controls cannot and will not stop you from advancing my mission and my kingdom. Those gates, those barriers to what the gospel wants to advance through will not stop you, just as the walls of Jericho could not stop the children of Israel from taking it. There is no territory controlled by the devil that can stop his kingdom from moving forward. That means that by faith we can, like Rahab, do really risky, hard things. It means we can protect others at the risk of our own life. It means that we can share the gospel at the risk of losing credibility and friendships. It means we can live in generosity with the risk of losing financial security. It means we can live in obedience to whatever Jesus would ask of us without fear of losing our own wants and desires. He can, we can risk it all knowing that when we act in obedience and faith to Jesus, gates of hell cannot stop us because the power of the resurrected Christ is in us. Just like the people of Jericho, coward melted away in fear by the stories and the whispers of the God of Israel, so too do our enemies, the enemies of God, every demonic force that wishes to prevent us from fulfilling God's call on our life, do they tremble and fear before the Christ who lives inside of you? Let us not then be like the spies who cower in fear, but let us be like Rahab the prostitute who risks it all for the God who saves. See, the story of Rahab reminds us that our faith is not blind. It's reasoned, and reason tells us that we can risk it all in service to Jesus because victory is secured in him. Rahab tells tells them, tells these spies, that she believes their God is the true God. Because of these whispers, that she believes that their God is the God of heaven and earth. And then she finally makes her request. Remember, she's not been forced to do any of this. She does it all up front. She risks everything with no guarantee of what they might do. She does it all up front. And then she makes her request. She says, I have dealt kindly with you. And when you take the city, not if you take the city, when your God gives you this city, will you not then deal kindly with me and spare me and my family? And they agree. And she ties a scarlet cord around her window. So when the the city falls, Rahab and her family are spared. One of the fascinating things missionaries talk about is how often when they go to share the gospel in a village or a town or to a person who's never heard the gospel before, often they'll get there and the person is waiting on them. And they'll say, I knew you were coming because last night I had a dream and some bright, bright, man told me that you would come and you would tell me how I, how I could know the true God, or you would come and tell me how I could be saved, or you would come and tell me the way to eternal life. 
And so I've been waiting for you because I knew you were going to be here. Now tell me, give me the words of life. How, how might I be saved? And these missionaries be baffled. It's just like, easy. Well, here it is. Great. You see, often God goes before us. He goes ahead of us to till the soil and prepare people to receive this message. In the same way, God went before these spies. He went before them and was preparing Rahab's heart to receive him. One, so that she would help his people, his spies, get home safely. And two, so that he could save her. God went before them to make sure she heard the news, that she heard the whispers of what the God of Israel could do. And in so doing, God softened her heart so that she would have the chance and the opportunity to risk everything to come to know him. That softened heart of Rahab finds that after the walls of Jericho fall, after the city is taken, they don't say, all right, we spared you. Go find a new home. They become her new home. They become her new people. They become her new family. And Yahweh becomes her new God. She finds that she is no longer a Canaanite. She is an Israelite. She is no longer Rahab the prostitute. She is Rahab, child of the living God. God was not ashamed to, or, or hesitant at all to let a foreigner become one of his children. And he was not ashamed to let a prostitute become a mother in the line of the Savior of the world. Rahab would marry a man named Salmon, an Israelite named Salmon. And they had a kid named Boaz. Boaz, who would himself marry a poor, helpless, foreign girl. And they would have a son named Obed, who would have a son named Jesse, who would have a son named David, king of Israel. And one day, one day from that same line would come a son. And the line of David and the line of Rahab, who would be the savior of the world. Rahab reminds us that the savior comes, Jesus comes from prostitutes and sinners. That he comes from foreigners, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That he comes for the weak. That he comes from these types of people and that he came for these types of people. That he comes for outsiders. He comes for the helpless. He comes for all of those, no matter tribe, tongue, or nation, no matter good or bad. Any who place their faith in him, he has come for. That if they would lose everything. If they would risk everything, lose family and country and wealth and even their own lives to place their faith in him and worship him above all else, that they could belong to Jesus and be in his family forever. The story of Rahab reminds us that sinful, broken strangers have a home in the family of God. That sinful, broken strangers have a home in the family of God. And is not that the real message of Christmas? Is that not the real Christmas miracle? That God so loved that he makes a way for all those who place their faith in him to find a forever family in the family of God. No matter how broken, 
No matter how sinful, no matter the bad choices you've made, no matter from what country you are from or what color your skin is, what language you speak or how much money is in your bank, if you come to Jesus, you will find a home in him. And all of those who come to faith in the son of Rahab find a God who does not just risk his life to save them. You find a God who gives his life to save them. The spies told Rahab after they made their deal, our lives for you. We break our word. But we all break our word. So Jesus gave his life for us. So we could find a family. Father, this morning, we know, that, we know that you go before us, and there are many in this room right now who, if they're honest with themselves, feels like they're unworthy to be a part of the family of God. If they're honest with themselves, feel like right now that they're not good enough, they need to clean up their act first, they need to get right first. Father, would you till the soil of their hearts to show them that you take the worst of the worst and the most vile of the vile. You take Grinches and make them who's. You take prostitutes and make them children of God. Father, if there's any in this room this morning who do not know you, who are far from you, you show them this morning they can become part of your family. And for those of us in this room who are, who are making Christmas plans and, and planning to get with family and it is weighing on our heart, those, those friends or those family members in our lives who we know are far from God, we know don't know you, we pray for them right now and pray you begin to go before them and prepare the soil of their heart and that this Christmas season you would give us the boldness to share the gospel with them and that they would receive it and they would risk everything to believe it and follow Jesus. Would you help us to not be like the spies, Father, who lived in fear? Help us to be like Rahab, who risks it all. Help us to risk everything to advance your kingdom, to, to give up everything to advance your kingdom, knowing that victory is secured. Give us that boldness. If you're here this morning and you need someone to pray with you, I'm going to be up here. There's going to be some guys on the side. We'd love to pray with you. Don't be afraid. Respond however the Lord would lead you, even if that just means stand and to sing and to focus a little more. God, give us the courage. Christ, and we pray all those people said. Stand together.